0: Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast and the Class. Guys, um, it, when, once it starts and then it picks up every recording. I'll start again. Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast and the Class. Breakfast in the Class is dedicated in loving memory and Lu nishmat. Amram ben Hoshit and Moshe. Shalom. Sponsored by his son, uh, Meir Kohen, Ruach you know, there's a very interesting uh, teaching in our Torah. And the Torah teaches us that um, a person has an obligation on the holiday of Sukkot. They have an obligation uh, as Jews to take each one of these four species... To bring them together and to shake them and be usmachtem Hashem And you will rejoice in front of Hashem your God. And I always thought it was so interesting. You know, normally when we read the idea that a person has an obligation to rejoice on the holiday, what do we say? What does it mean that you have an obligation to rejoice? How do we define that in the Gemara? Basar simcha, but here we see that aside from the mitzvah of v'samachta uh, bechagecha, which is el that you must have wine, you must have uh, meat, etc., etc., aside from those teachings, those ch'yuvim, there's a taking of the forminim usmachtem, and you will rejoice. It's almost as if the Torah is telling you that there's an obligation to rejoice In the taking of the Arba Minim. Now, I don't know. Did you ever feel that? I mean, I know I take the the mitzvah very seriously. You want to get a nice etrog, nice tulav. You want to shake it. You want to fulfill the mitzvah. Did you ever think when you picked up tulav and etrog, you have an obligation to rejoice in it? Usmachtem? Is that right? Is that something that ever crossed your mind? So I was thinking a little bit about what is this simcha that's spoken about in this pasuk here, That uh, is is connected to the taking of the lulav and the etrog. And my friends, I think that there's um, one very powerful idea that I want to share with you. You know, the Gemara, excuse me, the Midrash tells us that the the lulav and the etrog are. each one of the species is indicative of a different part of the human body. The etrog represents the heart, right, with its kind of bumpy, you know, walnut-like, kind of, the way it builds out, looks a little bit like the anatomy of a heart. It doesn't look like the, uh, like the birthday card heart, right, but that's not what a heart looks like. Hearts don't actually look at all the shape that we have a heart in emojis, okay, number one. Um, so the trogue represents the heart. The lulav, with its tall and thin uh, spine, represents the shidra, the spine of a person. The hadasim, with the short circle with the edges around it, represent the eyes. And the aravot, which is long and thin, with the line in the middle, literally looks like the person's lips. Okay? And the question is, you know, what, what does this do? How does this help? What does this achieve? You know, question number one. Question number two is separate to this idea of the body parts that are represented by the four species. We have another teaching that says that the four species represents four different types of Jews. The etrog, which has a good smell and a good taste, right, it represents a Jew that has Torah and mitzvot. The lulav, excuse me, the aravot, which have no taste and no smell, represents a person who doesn't do Torah and who doesn't do mitzvot. The hadasim and the, and, the, and the lulav, one has, the lulav has good taste, the, the tree has fruit that tastes good, so it has good taste, but no smell. And the hadasim have a good smell, but they have no taste. So one represents a Jew that has Torah with no mitzvot, and one represents a Jew that has mitzvot with no Torah. Which one is which? The hadassim that have the good smell represent a person who, is, who has mitzvot but no Torah. Okay? Whereas the, uh, the lulav represents a person, the lulav has taste represents a, a person who has Torah but no mitzvot. Why are those things connected? Why are they relevant to the taste and smell? Because Torah represents, when someone studies Torah, then the building process is experienced within the person, right? So therefore, the the taste of smell, is the the sense of taste, excuse me, is one which is experienced on a personal level. Like, if I eat a delicious uh, piece of pizza, you don't taste it. We can't both be tasting the same piece, right? Whereas, when I do mitzvot, I do mitzvot with other people, two other people, four other people. So that's similar more to the sense of smell, where one smell can, so so to speak, be smelled by many people at the same time, or even one after the other, okay? So these four represent the coming together, the drawing together, in fact, even the binding together of all the different types of Jews, of all the different strata of the Jewish nation, okay? So perhaps on the first level, when we talk about all Jews coming together, means that God is saying, I want you to rejoice, rejoice before me. But if you come as yourself, if you come without your brother, if you come without your sister, if the family table is is missing someone, it's so to speak a lack of simcha of Hashem because God can't truly be uh, experiencing a joyful connection with you when one of his kids is not at the table. In fact, Rambam writes, on the mitzvah of samachta b'chagecha, rejoicing in your holiday, he says not only does a person have obligation to have delicious meat and wine and rejoice and party on the holiday, he also has an obligation to take care of the people that are poor, the people that don't have a suuda. And Rambam writes, very sharp, he says if a person is only making sure that they're drinking wine and having meat, but they don't take care of the poor, they don't take care of the people who have no food to eat, Enzu simchat yom tov, this is not the simchat of yom tov, ela simchat kreso. It's the happiness of his stomach. You like wine, you like meat, okay, so you have an opportunity to eat, eat good meat and drink fine wine, okay? That's not about the mitzvah. And the proof is that if it was about God, how could you be enjoying when there's someone else who has nothing? So on that level, the the lefnei Hashem is teaching you that the coming together of Jews is a requirement for there to be any sort of simcha in front of God. Okay, Without that, it's fundamentally missing a piece. Now we're all familiar, before the holiday of Pesach, with the halachah of ma'ot chitin, which means the money for wheat, where people would give money traditionally to poor people before the holiday, before Pesach. But you see clearly from this word, Zuharam Mam, and as well, I believe, in the Mitzvah Lulav, that there's an obligation before any of the holidays uh, to make sure that everybody has, that the poor have what they need, and to be able to contribute uh, something meaningful towards that end. If someone is looking to help people make Yom Tov, if someone is looking, To help people, you can, of course, uh, do it through the shul. uh, We'll help distribute that money through our tzedakah fund uh, to people that don't have money to be able to make the holiday. But my friends, I want to now take a look at the last element. The teaching we started with is that a person, in bringing together the etrog, dululah, the hadasim, and aravot, they're, so to speak, unifying the body parts of a human being in the service of God. And I think there's something very important here, that we didn't choose to signify your fingers, or your arms, or your legs, right? We chose specific parts of the human body. We chose the shidra, the spine, we chose the heart, we chose the lips, and we chose the eyes. Always bothered me that we left the ears out. Hands and legs I understand maybe. But the ears, there's so many mitzvot that a person does with their ears. There's so many things that are required. A person needs their ears in order to be able to do. we just read, it's only possible with a person that has ears. However, I want to illustrate this idea, um, this concept, and show what it, really, what it really means. What does it mean that we're taking the eyes, the lips, the heart, and the spine and pulling them together. What does that mean? What is this idea that they're that they're driven or drawn together? And I think that this is an unbelievable lesson for our generation. You know, when a person speaks, right? When they uh, when they say they use their words, we are all aware of the power that a person's words have. We know that the right word in the right time literally can make someone's life, and the wrong word, in the wrong time, can destroy it. So much so, that Pasuk says, That life and death itself are in the hands of the tongue. There's many iterations of that. Again, someone can achieve breaking up a marriage, breaking up a family. A person could dissolve a business partnership with a few words. They can take away opportunities from a person. They can have a person thrown in jail. Right? There's lots of different things you could do to ruin someone's life, uh, just with speaking a few words. But the flip side of that is, of course, you're capable of building. How does a person decide which words they want to say? How do you decide, how do you make that shikul hadat Uh, And decide how you want to speak about somebody. You saw something, you know. You now you want to say something. How do you decide? Our rabbis teach us that before a person uses or employs their mouth, really, there's something that precedes it, and that is ayn tova, the eye, a good eye. If a person looks at someone in a negative or cynical way, if that's how they look at the world. So then when you come to speak about it, that's not a disconnected part to the way you saw something. It's part and parcel of the way you see something. Negative people say negative things. Positive people say positive things. But you only will say positive things if you saw things positively. So the the eye and the mouth are inextricably bound together. That's why Al-Khamim tell us that in the Uh, Aleph Bet, we learn so many elements of wisdom of human life. Says the Gemara, Aleph Bet, Aleph Bina, Gimel Dalid, Gomel Dalim. Aleph Bina means let me teach you wisdom. Gimel Dalid, Gomel Dalim, that God, he does kindness with the poor. And they illustrate, even within the framework of the letters themselves, if you look at the Gimel, the Gimel, so to speak, is walking. It has those two legs, and it has an arm stretched out. Like the person who's giving. The dalet, which is the dalim, it's got the arm, the back. If you look at the top of the dalet, it's reaching backwards. This is the Gemara. The Gemara says this. So even the letters themselves, they teach you wisdom. And the Chachamim explain that the Torah is also teaching you that in the Torah and in the order of the Aleph Bet, that before you have Peh in the Aleph Bet, you have Ayin. Ayin comes... Ain and Peh, unbelievable. I remember reading someone, some once upon a time, that the Torah is communicating to you that there's a three-step process here. Ain, Peh, Sadiq. okay? You have a person who sees right, a person who speaks right, that person is Nechshav, he's considered to be, to be a Sadiq. But of course, it's not just about people. You know, our mouths, we speak positively of people, but we also speak positively about God. Every time you say the words, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, has an impact on the people who are hearing those words. They hear, they understand, they recognize that you're saying positive things about Borei Olam. They want to know, who's this Borei Olam? They also start to think in that way. There's a person who looks negatively at God. I'm very angry at, at Hashem, you know? Well, there's a person who looks positively at God. So that Ayn, the discerning eye is also what leads to the pay. But my friends, how do you decide what is the right outlook to have? How do you decide what your eyes should see? And indeed, this is the way. Most of us think that our eyes bring us impartial facts, and then our brains act as honest adjudicators and decide how to interpret what we see. But for most people, actually, it does not work that way. That's not how it works. It's not that we are honest in what we see, and then we decide what we saw, but rather, before we even look, we've decided what we want to see. I want to just illustrate this with a, a simple example that uh, many people have heard of before. They did an amazing experiment with an amazing violinist. His name was Joshua Bell. Maybe the most famous violinist in the world. They got him the most expensive violin, a Stradivarius, millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of years old. They're tuned to perfection, they're the most unbelievable uh, instruments, most unbelievable violins in the world. So they got the best violinist, playing the best violin, and they gave him one of the most beautiful concertos to play, and he goes into a subway station as if he's a regular guy playing for money on the street, a guy with no options, no hope, he's homeless, whatever. He opens up a little thing for money and he starts playing violin. People are walking past him like this for hours. Back, forth, back, forth. No one stops to listen. This is a person who people pay hundreds of dollars to go to sit for hours to listen to a concert in the the Philharmonic, you know what I mean? Like this. And he's in a train station, people walk around. What? What was the outcome? What did they decide? What did they see from this? They realized... That a person only sees beauty where they expect beauty to be. You walk into a thrift store and you see a painting. In the thrift store you say, oh, it's a piece of junk. Right? But it might be a a painting, a Picasso. It might be a Monet. It might be a Van Gogh. It might be. You have no idea. But you never take it seriously. You know why? Because you assume it's junk. Because where am I? I'm in a place where everyone threw out their stuff and donated and gave it away. So it's, it makes it. Now you go to the same painting, you went, you saw in a museum, you're sitting here, wow, what was the artist thinking? What was he doing? When you're walking in the, in the museum, everything is a masterpiece, and you're the dip that has to go figure it out. Okay? You go into a thrift store, you look at a painting, that's the ugliest painting I ever saw. Right? People only see beauty where they expect beauty to be. And what that means is, and this is such a powerful idea, it means that before we've even looked at something, we have decided if it is going to be beautiful. Before you look at a person, at a community, you decide if they're good people or bad people. And then, you know what happens? You use all of the data that comes your way for something which is called Confirmation bias. We're experiencing it today in the news and politics all the time. You have people who are watching only the same channels, which tell you that the Democrats are the Mashiach, and the Republicans are all the Satan, Yitzhah, Ramalach, and and anyone who's a Republican is the worst person in the world, okay? And that's the narrative. You find the Republican doing something nice, what do they say? Oh, the guy's sleazeball. Look at him trying to get re-elected. <laughs> Right now, switch to the other side. Go to a Republican channel. Look at how they talk about Democrats. They can't find a nice thing to say about someone from the other party. Because what we've done is we've created these siloed elements of information. These information superhighways that have one lane. So we live in a generation of information superhighways with one lane. One lane going this way. And one lane going that way. You're either on this side or you're on that side. And you've decided before you even look at the ticket, which side of the, is he Republican is he Democrat? You're not voting for a person anymore. You're voting for a party? Happens to be the guy's wearing the blue tie or the red tie. My friends, why am I saying this? This is not about politics. I don't care about politics. Okay? What I'm trying to communicate, though, is that if a person doesn't think that they're making decisions as to how to see somebody, they're just not being honest. And if you want to find or catch yourself out doing this, look at someone you really don't like. Look how hard it is to admit that they did something nice. <laughs> you find someone good, someone comes to complain to you about your kid, about your first reaction is to, no, you don't understand, that's not what he meant, he was under a lot of pressure. You have every excuse in the book. For someone you love, you have all the excuses. That means that before you even see the facts, you've made up your mind. That's why we take the eyes, we take the lips, which are the product of what you saw, and we draw it together with the heart, which is the etrog, to communicate to a person that the emotions that live inside your heart towards something, those things inevitably will guide um, the way you see and the way you speak about those things. And that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu asks us all the time, I need you to know today, I need you to return it to your heart, that Hashem is your King, that He done all these things for you, that He saved your life, that He took you out of Egypt, because the more we develop that love inside of our heart, it changes the way we choose to look at God, and the way we choose to see Him in our lives. You know, everyone always says, when terrible things happen, why is God doing this to me? I never had a guy who did well in business, who came to me and said, you know, I do very well, why is God doing this to me? Right? He's never asking why he deserves the good, he's only asking why he deserves the bad. But that's a person whose heart led him to see only the things that God did to him that he didn't like. Okay? So what the Torah is communicating, therefore, is recognize that your emotions are going to dictate how you'll see and how you'll speak. And therefore, the Torah says, since those things are linked one to the other, like a sukkot paper chain that your kid made in school, recognize, therefore, as well, that you need to develop a spine to be able to regulate your emotions. What a magnificent thing we are now looking at. The spine, which represents a person's conviction, a person acting the right way, standing up straight, so to speak, okay? But it really even goes deeper than that. What is the function of the spine in the human anatomy? What does it do? So most people think that the spine just helps you stand. But actually, the spine is hollow. And through the the middle of the Uh, of the rings on the spine run the entire the wiring for the human for the human body it's through the back of the brain through the bone right there that you put the Tifilin on that goes down to the spine and in that space all of the brains thoughts are carried out to all the body parts so the question I asked earlier why is it that the body parts are not represented they are they're represented in the spine where all the brain's thoughts are taken from the realm of the theoretical and driven into the realm of the practical and of the physical. My friends, therefore, what we're looking at here is an idea that says to a human being these elements that make you up, that make you distinct, that make you powerful, make sure that you're using them in tandem. Because many people use the eyes and the, heart, the eyes and the mouth without their heart. They use the eyes and the mouth without a spine. They have whatever emotion they want, and they don't have any, nothing kind of making them, forcing them uh, to, to, in their actions, uh, stand up for principle. My friends, sometimes we experience that as well in our societies, where there's a heart, uh, there's a compassion for people, for, um, for behaviors. Oh, Hazit, Hazit, Hazit. mean, you think about what's going on today, we're experiencing a labor shortage because, because we've, we've upped so many different benefits for people that it doesn't pay to work. It just doesn't pay to get a job. You're gonna get more from unemployment You'll get more from the benefits, from the free healthcare, than if you worked and then got yourself out of that bracket. So why a guy thinking, what am I going to go work for? Minimum wage in a restaurant, and a McDonald's, flipping burgers, driving an Uber, uh, you know, go, you know, go, you're running an errands for the dry cleaner, which are all respectable jobs. They're hardworking jobs. Why should I do that? I'd rather just get the money for free. Now, where did that come from? The idea that will just give people money without asking them for anything in return? It came from the heart. It came from a compassion for people that had no money. That's where it came from. You know, the idea that we uh, have to reform prisons, where did that come from? It came from the heart. It came from a compassion. Where's the idea of bail reform come from? Let's let everybody out of prison the next morning. Where'd it come from? It came from the heart, but at some stage, the spine needs to stand up to the heart and say, your compassion here is misplaced. Your compassion here is dangerous. Your compassion here is causing terrible problems in society. The undisciplined emotional person gives you a world where you could have a society that you build, which is inherently flawed and corrupt, And here's the problem. You look around the world, there has never been an example of a country that succeeded in using these methodologies to be able to sustain and build a society that works. Never. Everyone that has tried these has collapsed. That's where the heart, the ideology, the uh, utopian perspective comes from this emotional state but isn't driven, isn't guided, isn't reined in by the spine saying, even if this is painful, there's some things that we need to do because that compassion is actually being cruel. You're generating, you're putting a person ironically in a prison that they can never escape from because you're forcing the person to not be a master of their own destiny. By giving him handout after handout after handout, you're turning the person into a perpetual ani, a perpetual poor person. So we need to have all these four things operating in tandem to be able to run a healthy lifestyle. The result of that healthy lifestyle is when we're operating uh, in sync, in rhythm when all the pieces are working together synergistically, that brings about an unbelievable simcha in the person because you don't have the one causing problems for the other, the other causing problems for the one. Baruch Adonai Amen